Well, good morning. How's everybody doing today? All right, good. I'm filling time while I'm moving this table, if you can't tell. My name is Michael Giuliano. I am currently the technical arts pastor here at Oakwood. I say currently because, as many of you know, I am currently on my way of transitioning out of full-time ministry. My wife and I are glad to still be a part of Oakwood, get to be part of this body of believers, and especially excited to continue our ministry with the college students. Uh, my wife and I lead the college small group on Wednesday nights and have... Yeah, there we go. Thank you, Allie. I appreciate that. Um, my college students are over there, at least some of them are. Um, and we're really excited to continue to do that, which is why I get the special privilege today to speak and to preach on Graduation Sunday and get to speak specifically to our graduates as they are heading off to college. But also, I want to bring a word that the Lord has given me to, to this congregation that I think will not only apply to our graduates, but to all of us as well. However, before I get to that, if you will indulge me, I need like two minutes that I can talk directly to these graduates. So hang with me, just two minutes, all right? You guys did it. Congratulations, you made it. Um, I know you're gonna get a lot of congratulations over the next couple of days, but I wanna give that to you from the stage, from this congregation again. Congratulations, you've got a lot of life left ahead of you, and it's gonna be great. If I can give you guys three pieces of advice as you head off to college, I would give you these. Um, and again, I know you're gonna get lots of advice over the course of the next month, two months, all that as you're starting college, but you know, I'm, I'm hoping that something from this will stick and that God will speak something to you. Uh, so our graduates, one thing is you, three things as you get to college. Number one, find a local church, plug into it, and serve at it. Your faith is going to either thrive or die, and it's up to you. And here's the deal, plugging into the local church and serving there is one of the greatest ways that you can continue to feed your faith and continue to stand fast in the word of God and continue on this path that he brought you on. And as you serve at these churches, find friends and a group of people that you can be around that can push you to be a better person, that you can push them to be a better version of themselves. Make friends with people that you want to be like. That's number one. Number two, take a personal finance class. Trust me, as a business major, I took a business finance class and things really changed for me. Understand interest, understand how loans work, understand how to do your taxes and know how your checking account works. You're taking out student loans, you're making big financial decisions. Know how that stuff works. You have electives, use them. I promise you, this is one of the most practical courses that you will get to use every day of your life for the rest of your life. My opinion. Number three, grades are important but there are far more things that will grow you as a person in college. Go to class, get your degree, learn what you're there to learn, but do not sacrifice everything else to make sure you maintain that 4.0 GPA. God is going to grow you as an entire person, not just as an academic when you're in the college years and the college sphere. So I'm not saying, you know, don't go to class. I am saying, also go with your friends and hang out some nights when you really shouldn't, it's a little bit too late. Enjoy your college years. Or if you're not going to college, you know, enjoy these first few years that you've got, but take the time to do those things. Now, thank you guys for indulging me. Graduates, take what you can from that, and I pray that God will bless you with some of those pieces of advice I wish I had when I went out. Now, I wanna to talk to all of us. 
inspired by the fact that our graduates are heading out into the world. And in the Gospels, it says that we are to be salt and light and that we are to reach the world for Christ. And as these college students are going out, I would, I would argue to say that the culture that they are going into is vastly different from the culture that I stepped into when I went to college a decade ago. Sorry, that's hard to say still. Um, I, I'm serious. I, in the last 10 years, the way that the world looks that I stepped into out of college is so vastly different than the one that you guys are stepping into. Uh, the rate of change of technology has caused not only technological advance, advancements to turn over every year, year and a half. Now it seems like our culture is hitting a new talking point or a new wave of something or a whole, like it changes every year and a half it feels like. It, it, am I crazy? Right? It feels that way to everyone else, right? Or is that just me? Yes? No? Okay, good. Popping heads. Good. You guys are still with me. That's just what it feels like. And so here's the beauty though. The culture may change, our world may change, the gospel stays the same, right? The gospel's been the same thing since day one. However, the way that we communicate it, the way that we translate it, the way that we talk about it, the way that we present it, that must change constantly because our enemy, the devil, is very smart. He learns the ways that we're spreading the gospel, thinks, okay, what's the best way to disrupt that? And then he puts in place. He's like a great business manager. He's got a five-month plan and a six-month plan and a 10-year plan and a 20-year plan to wipe that out. So we have to constantly be thinking, how do we present the gospel to the world that we are now currently in? And so I, I want to propose something, that there is a model, not a model, but more a, um, a stigma of evangelism um, that is around how the gospel is presented nowadays that I think has developed from good intentions and a good heart, but that, that Satan has been able to take to twist and to create an expectation and an appearance in our Western culture that pushes people away from the gospel. And I want to take you to the scriptures I think have given root to this that our enemy has been very good about twisting and changing. So um, if you'll go with me, uh, you, uh, normally we have the app and has all of our notes and whatnot in it. We don't have the scriptures and that stuff that week, this week. That's my fault. I was sick for a couple days last week. And so getting everything to our secretaries, I was a bit slow on it. So my apologies, but I'll be reading from the scriptures. Scriptures will be um, in lower thirds and stuff on the screen. If you want to turn in your Bibles to follow, that'd be great. But I'll be reading a lot of it too this morning. But we're coming out of uh, John 17 here, the high priestly prayer. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Now this verse is used a lot when we talk about evangelism, to be in the world but not of the world, which is correct, that's exactly what Christ says. But here's the deal, that, that phrasing, that idea that we need to be not like the world, I think can sometimes start to get a little twisted when it's combined with some other stuff in Scripture. Now, let me take us to another place. I'll be jumping around a lot, so I do apologize. But Luke 6, uh, 22 through 23, starting with, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Then now to verse 26. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. 
These two verses together, along with many others, I think this, this, this comes from a good number of scriptures, but these two encapsulate it really well. We are in the world, but not of the world, and people must hate us and revile us, or else we're not standing staunchly enough for the Bible. If people don't hate me, if people don't look at me and revile me, if they, if they don't exclude me, if they don't spurn me on the account of the Son of Man, I'm not standing faithful and righteousness enough. And while there is truth in that, that exterior, that presence that, get, that give, gives off is compounded by the bad actions of others out there that say that they represent the church. And the people that I'm talking about indescriptly are those people that you see pictures of on the internet holding up a sign that said, God hates you and you're going to burn in hell. That group of people, the people that go out and do those things, then whenever people see that, they experience that, and then they see these people standing. I have to be staunchly standing, and if I'm not standing in a certain way that the world hates me, that I'm not preaching the gospel hard enough, that interacts together. And I, I think our graduates growing up as Generation Z, did I get that right? Right? Yeah? This is no, this is yes. Help me out here. I'm saying some yeses. I'm going to go with yes. Um, that, that, that comes together. I think you guys see it. That, that It gives off this perception to the world of what the church is and who Christians are. And it gives this sense of, I'm, I'm good. Thank you. I, I, don't want to, I, I don't need to be a part of that. But here's the deal. The, the, the reason that that matters is, is that I'm looking at a framework of how we evangelize, a mindset of how we evangelize, right? And how this mindset of, I need to be different than the world, and people need to, I need to expect to be rejected and pushed away and chased off and hated by the world, that is correct, but it's compounded by this already existing idea in our culture of what Christianity is to some people. And that creates a really bad thing for us as we're trying to reach people. Because here's the deal. I want to continue on with Christ's words. Still Luke uh, 6, actually the next verse after 26. He says, But I say to you, who here, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer him the other also, and for the one who takes your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and for one, the one who takes of your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do to them as well. I got to ask, in what world where people look like that, loving their enemies, good to people that hate us, blessing those who abuse us, giving freely, in what world do we hate people that do that? If I met a guy on the street that was like just giving stuff to homeless people and somebody came up and punched him in the face and he looked at him and went, Hey, I, I, I didn't think, okay, I think there's something wrong with that guy, or I think I want to be his friend. Like, those are good traits. Those are good character qualities. Why would the world hate us and revile us for that? And here's the deal. It's not the way that we act that the world should then hate us for and despise us for and push us away for. It shouldn't be this attitude, this staunchness that we have that we should be I've got, to be, I've got to be righteous and rightful, and, and if the world, like, that's, that's not what they're going to push us away for. The thing that the world is going to push us away for is because of what we believe, because Scripture says that our identity is found in Christ and not what we do or who we are or what we say. 
that there is a higher moral standing, a moral code that exists above and beyond the human idea. That is what runs contrary to our culture. That is why our culture should not love us. That is why our culture should hate us, not because of this attitude that we have about this staunchness that we have that then in their minds aligns us with these people who say, God hates you. And that's the biggest, that's, that's, that's the brilliance that Satan has spun of, of basically aligning us with that. But scripture gives us the answer to that. Just as Christ just described way, the way that we should appear to our enemies, let me give you another one. It comes from 2 Timothy 2, 22 through 26. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them, his opponents, repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Listen to that. Flee youthful passions. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, and a pure heart. Correct your opponents with gentleness. Don't be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone. I think our evangelism, our pursuit to reach the world, especially in this modern age, especially as we go onto college campuses, as we go out into workplaces, we're in the buckle of the Bible Belt, but still we see the effects of our culture as it's changing and all of that. And we are going out not with this standing firm, expecting hatred from people, instead, coming out and saying, who can I love today? Who can I show patience to and faith and righteousness? If that is our background for our evangelism, this softness rather than the staunch hardness, don't get me wrong, we should be strong in our beliefs. Yes, we should, but the background of our evangelism and our communication with people and our desire to build a relationship, the softness, this love, It changes that playing field and it disarms people. It brings down those walls that they have. Now, now, right there I'm talking kind of about our, our motivation, our background, all that kind of thing. Let me, let me try to translate this into very practical things for you. Um, and the way I'm gonna do that is I'm gonna look at a couple of different interactions, specifically of Jesus at first. Um, and we're gonna talk about Jesus and the Canaanite woman. Um, In Scripture, there's not a ton of instances, in fact, there's very few, of Christ directly talking with Gentiles because he was sent here to preach to the Jews first. But we get a couple of them. I want to mention this because uh, if if we're considering comparing ourselves to Christ and how he interacted with people, when, when Christ interacted with Jews and the Pharisees and the children of Israel, that's the same equivalent to us interacting with people within the church. And then when Christ interacted with people that were not Jewish, that were Gentiles, that's the equivalent of us interacting with people outside the church. That's kind of the equivalence. So here's an example of Christ interacting with somebody outside of the church of the time. This is him with the Canaanite woman. He said, it says, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman, a woman not Jewish but lived in the land of Canaan, Uh, from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. 
And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away as she is calling out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Sometimes I wonder, man, are you having a bad day, Jesus? <laughs> That's harsh. That is, because she's a Canaanite, right? And he came here to preach to the children of Israel, and he's comparing her, like, no, I came here to give bread to the children, not to the dogs. And, and here's the thing. I think a lot of times people take Jesus' harshness, like in this situation, or situations where he's speaking to the Pharisees, and they take that as license to be harsh and powerful, I don't know, I don't know how the right word for it, but to, to present the gospel in that same way with this aggressiveness. But see, when Christ was aggressive like that, when he spoke like this, it was always for a purpose. He was the son of, he was the son of God. He was the son of man, and he knew things. And so in this particular instance, he, I, I truly believe this is as much for the Canaanite woman as it was for his disciples because of her response. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. This woman has knelt before Jesus and said, yes, but even I, a dog, will eat the crumbs from the master's table. She has humbled herself. And Jesus' response is this. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And the daughter was healed instantly. Now, I'm going to come back to this, but I want to contrast that now with another story that a lot of us know, which is uh, John 4. It is the woman at the well. Quick background, if you don't know, uh, there was a land in Judea called Samaria. The Samaritans were basically people that were of Jewish descent, but had also um, had, had uh, relations and, and children with the people of the land. They were more or less half-blood Jews and Gentiles. Now, in the Mosaic Law, they're specifically told, don't do that. Um, how? Jews marry Jews, stay that way. That was the way the law was set up. So uh, the Jews were exiled to Babylon for a long time. A few of them were left behind and became the Samaritans. They intermarried. Well, when the Jews then came back from Babylon, now we have pure-blood Jews, and we have people that are Samaritans, and then there's Gentiles. Well, the Jews viewed the Samaritans as unclean because they were of mixed blood, and they literally, if they could do it, they would walk around the land of Samaria, going from the lower part of Judea to the upper part. They would just try to walk around, and, and very rarely would they like to go through even Samaria. To, they, we, that way they wouldn't become ceremonially unclean. Now, Jesus, being Jesus, didn't care. He walked right through Samaria. And in fact, that's where we pick up. He and his disciples stopped in a place called Sychar and sat down at a well that Jacob had dug. And this is where we pick up. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Now, this is just my opinion because this is the way that I've, I've read it. My wife was actually surprised that this is the, the vibe I get. So, my opinion, you don't have to agree. I read this passage as just that this woman is now sitting down next to a Jewish man who probably normally would ignore her, not even want to talk or look at her because... She's unclean, but now he's asking her for a drink, and I just feel that she gets, a, like, rightfully so, a little snippy with him and sarcastic with him. That's the way I've always read it, and it, I don't know. I, that's just the way I read this. My wife said, oh, 
really? Found that interesting. But again, my opinion, but it just makes it, makes it more interesting to me. Um, so the Samaritan woman then says to, you know, says, uh, how can you offer me a drink? And Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God, who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never, never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And this is the part where I think the woman... Um, I think a lot of people read this in earnest. I, again, I, I read it as sarcastic. That's my opinion, but it just, you know, because I just see here looking at him going, sir, give me this water that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to drink water with you. Again, that's kind of how I read it. But that's what she says, that I don't have to come here to draw water. Now, this next verse is where I think a lot of people like to jump to in the story and start to talk about it here, because this is where Christ then mentions her husband. Um, and that's why, I think, that's why I think he does, because I think she was getting a little bit snippy with him, and a little bit, again, like I said, rightfully so, the Jews treated the Samaritans terribly, but she had no idea who she was talking to. And he then, at this point, brings up, where's your husband? And he goes on into this list of things, you know, her sin and her shame and all that, and they talk about that. I want to jump further down, because as they, as they converse, they start talking about worshiping God, whether the Samaritans do it here on this mountain, they, or should the Jews do it where they do it? Well, one day they'll worship in spirit and in truth. And, and the woman says to him, and this is where we pick up in 20, verse 25, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Throughout the Bible, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, these letters that Paul wrote, he is specifically talking to the church. Right here, Christ, in my opinion, this woman's a Samaritan. Remember when I said earlier that when Christ interacts with people, we can see it as either he's interacting with people inside the church or outside the church if we compare it to us? This Samaritan woman, she is Jewish by blood, half so, but she worships God in Judea. She is looking for a coming Messiah, calls herself a daughter of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By all intents and purposes, the way that I've always heard it taught and the way that I believe, she is a Jewish believer, though she is not accepted by the full-blood Jewish priesthood. So to me, she, he is talking to a believer in this situation. And I want you to look, compare that to how he talked to the Canaanite woman, who was not a believer. To both, he said a few harsher things. To the woman at the well, he talked about her past and her sin. To the woman in Canaan, he compared her to a dog, again, I think for a very specific purpose. But what he did not do the same was what also I just mentioned. He did not bring up the sins of the Canaanite woman. He brought up the sins of the Samaritan, the one within the religious order, the same as he would do with the Pharisees or with the Sadducees or some member of the Jewish community that would come to him. Over and over again, he would talk about individual sins. But with the Canaanite woman, one of the few times he interacted directly with the Gentile, he says nothing about her sin. I want to show one more, one more example before I really get to the point of that. The Roman centurion. This is another story that a lot of people know about with Jesus. 
When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you under my roof, but only say the word, my servant will be healed. For I too have men under authority with soldiers under me. I say, go to one, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. I said to another, do this, and he does it. And Jesus heard this and marveled at the man's faith, saying, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of God will be thrown into the outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then he said, go, let it be done as you have believed. And the servant was healed from that hour. Another time that Jesus interacted with a Gentile and not a single mention of the man's sins. People seem to want to take a model from what Jesus did when he interacted with people inside the Jewish faith and make it a model for evangelism of how we should interact with people that don't know who he is today. They want to make that the model of evangelism. And I understand that. But if we look at scripture and we look at how Jesus or the apostles or the church seemed to interact with those outside the faith, it was not about pointing out specific things that they are sinful about and saying, you need to repent of these things. Rather, it was like John the Baptist when he came and he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is nigh. Consider, consider something for me real quick. A man is, uh, is a drunk. He drinks heavily every single day. Uh, gets blackout drunk on the weekends, does this with his friends. He's done it for forever. He enjoys it. He thinks it's just part of the way that he should live. That's his life. One day he ends up at a church service. And there he hears the pastor preach on the sin of anger. And the man sitting in the pews knows he's an angry person, knows he gets it from his father. And he is broken of his sin right there in that moment that he is a sinner, comes down front, accepts Christ, gets a Bible, and starts coming to church regularly. But he has no idea that drinking and drunkenness is a sin, because no one's told him. He continues his life. Three months later, he's still studying the Bible, still learning, comes, he sits down in the pews, the pastor preaches on the sins of the flesh, and preaches on drunkenness. This man now sitting in the pew realizes that for the past three months, every single day, every single weekend, he has been committing the sin of drunkenness. And now he seeks to change his life. Is his salvation three months prior any less valid? No. He was broken of sin. Maybe not the most obvious sin, the sin that you and I would sit down and see literally on his face, but a sin that he was convicted of, brought to his knees, and came to the throne of grace. Romans tells us the law, one of the things the law does is it reveals the sin of man. If we don't know the law, we don't know our sin. I think, again, with this, with this background of wanting to staunchly stand on our firm beliefs in Christ and, and, and be different from the world and want people to revile and hate us, we, we have in that background this need then that we need to talk to people about their sin very specifically, about what exactly they need to repent. And here's the deal. I feel like we're putting the cart before the horse because there is a massive difference between You need to change your life and come to know Christ. And you need to know Christ 
so that he can change your life. Don't require sanctification before salvation. Sanctification, in case you don't know, sanctification is a big word that simply means once we are saved, once we come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, we are currently now always and forever on the path of sanctification where we are moving to become more and more like Christ every single day. That's the idea of sanctification. The whole, the verse is about uh, gold being refined in a fire and that it is, it is something that God is refining in us. That is the idea. That's what sanctification is. And the thing is, sanctification continues for our entire lives from the day that we are made new in Christ until the day that we die. And our sanctification isn't even complete until we stand before the throne of grace in eternity and we receive a new body and a new name and are made whole in Jesus again. That's what sanctification is. I think sometimes we want to require bits of sanctification as prerequisites for salvation. But, but nothing, none of this happens in a vacuum. Nothing, nothing happens just in this conceptual space. It is highly unlikely that if you're in a relationship with someone or you're talking philosophy with someone that you'll even be able to talk about the salvation of Christ without really talking about the details of sin. And frankly, they may even ask you, okay, so what is sin? And you kind of explain, it's, you know, it's the contrary nature of man and God. Well, what are some sins? And you'll get into those types of conversations, right? Well, when those do happen, what, what I think this whole idea of, of, of having love and softness for people and, and, and presenting the gospel this way is that when we do, we need to not just talk about their sins. In fact, I would tell you to ignore maybe at first talking about theirs, but instead talk about our sins, Show them that we are also always changing and growing. People will trust you more when you are honest about the things that God has radically changed and is radically changing in your life. And I'm not just saying that you tell people, well, I was a sinner, I was saved by grace, and I'm a different person than I was before. Yes, it's a valid statement. I mean, be a little bit vulnerable, be a little bit honest, be a little bit specific like, I was an angry person. I punched a hole in the wall every other day, and God is getting a hold of my heart and telling me I need to rein in the anger in myself and figure out why I'm angry all the time. Or um, I, I'm a gossip. Like, that's just the, the truth of it. I, I love to hear details about what's going on in other people's lives and then spread them around so people think I'm important or in the know or they won't pay attention to my own flaws. Or I'm a glutton, not just of food, but of media and of drugs and of anything I can get my hands on to try to fill the void in me. And God is working on me and showing me that he is what I should be satisfied and sustained on. I mean, even just saying that right now, did I not? That breaks down a few extra walls, doesn't it? It brings down your guard. Railing against people for, for breaking some sort of cultural Christian standard that we have instead of coming to them with true love and concern for their immortal souls. That, I think, is what is often lost in our larger evangelistic field today. And that's what we need to focus on is that people, we're here to spread the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is not a sword. The kingdom of God is love and wanting you to spend eternity with Christ and know who he is in the fullness of himself now that you may live to that extent in his love now. 
And, and I want to say this, this. I'm not saying that we should water down our gospel. I think that we should get to applying the gospel as we first heard it. Repent and be baptized. After that, we can become more like Christ. Because we are to preach salvation to the unbeliever and sanctification to the believer. Salvation to the unbeliever and sanctification to the believer. Salvation is often seen as this point in time, this moment or this stretch of moments where we come to the saving knowledge of Christ and sanctification is that long endeavor towards who we should be in Christ. And in our vigor and zeal to represent the gospel and to be different from the world and to be in the world but not of it, I think oftentimes we then take these pieces of sanctification and almost slap them on as things that are required for salvation. You could be sitting across the coffee table from somebody that you have been hoping will come to know Jesus for a long time, and there's a specific sin that you can literally see on them, and you're like, this, this is the thing that's gonna, that God's going to break them of, and that's what, when they realize that, and all of a sudden they're sitting there going, you know what, I'm... I do steal. You're like, what, you do? Yeah, I shoplift. Really? I, I am a bad person. I do need salvation. And, and then they ask and they receive Christ, and you're like, but, but, again, the thing that I was looking at, the obvious sin, the same as the drunkard, the obvious one. Well, guess what? God didn't break them of that in that moment, and something else brought them to Christ. Well, guess what? Now that person is a believer in Christ, and you get to walk with them as part of that sanctification process. Salvation does not require that we know the ins and outs of every sin that we commit. Salvation requires a brokenness of spirit that God gives us. Sanctification, and then, is the figuring out of those sins. That would be my encouragement. That as we go out into this world that is much changed, that we go out with that softness of heart and that we seek to bring people the simple saving knowledge of who Jesus is, that he died for sinners and that he loves us. And then once people come to that saving knowledge, we get to walk with them in their sanctification because we're not sanctified, yet I'm finding out every day new things I need to work on. Yet God saved me and loved me from the beginning. And here's the deal, especially now, there may be something that is a sin that somebody has built their entire identity around. And it's gonna take some time. God may convict them of something else so that he can get to know them and he can begin walking with them so that when it's time for him to deal with this, it's gonna hurt peeling these layers of identity off this person's self as they come to understand that this thing is sin needs to be given to God that they may find a new identity. That hurts. That's painful. That's refining fire, and they're going to need you to walk with them in that. Just preach the gospel. Salvation to the unbeliever. Sanctification to the believer. Let God break people of the things he needs to break them of, and then walk with people. Encourage one another. That group of friends, college students that I told you to find that is going to make you better, those are the people you better be helping push through the refining fire. 
Those are the people that Christ used the harshest language with, of the believers that were not doing what they were supposed to. When Paul writes all these different letters saying, don't be like the world, don't be like the world. In Romans, when he builds up to chapter 6 and says, stop sinning because of what Christ has done for you, that was all spoken to believers. And that's us pushing each other and pushing each other and pushing each other to be more like Christ. That's where that aggressiveness needs to be. That's what it's like to walk with each other in faith, but to present the gospel to unbelievers. The gospel is beautiful and kind and saves. Do not require people to look like us or even recognize everything they need to see to look more like Christ before they can come to know.